any point, so I'll be, uh, I won't be preaching for a little while, but we've got some great guests coming in. Next week we'll be having Dr. Wesley Regin from Queensland Theological College coming to bring us um, a message, and the week after that we'll have Dr. Andrew Prince from Brisbane School of Theology. So I'm getting the big guns in uh, to bring you God's Word. Uh, we've got a few guests, a few friends coming in, uh, so they've kindly agreed to serve us in the Word. So I'm looking forward to that, um, and I hope you'll benefit from that in the next few weeks as well, just to let you know. Now, friends, um, as we go on into the book of Mark, we've reached um, a part of the book where Jesus Christ is just about to go to the cross, and um, yeah, the tension is building. This is where the whole book has been headed towards, um, and we're going to see a trial. And when we think of trials and courtrooms, uh, what, what, what all that's about is about justice, isn't it? And justice is something that's very important for us as humans. Justice. Justice. We want things to be right. We want things to be fair. We want things to be as they should be. We all desire justice. And that's innate in us. There's something in us where we all want that justice. Whether it's the justice that you feel when your younger brother or sister does something to you and you feel that injustice, or whether it's a more serious uh, situation where you see the injustice of the world, uh, the child slavery, the sexual abuse, the terrorism, and their perpetrators that just walk free. Injustice. And we cry out for justice. We want justice. Justice is something that we desire, and it's a good thing for us. But today, we're going to see a trial which is incredibly unjust. We're going to see the greatest example of injustice in all of history as we watch this trial. And I'm going to tell you something a bit odd. It's actually a really good thing. In fact, it's the best thing that's ever happened to this world. What do I mean? Well, we're going to see as we go on into our story. Last week we saw the Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb, uh, as he shared the Last Supper with his disciples just before uh, he's about to be arrested and taken to the cross. As we left the narrative last week, we saw Judas, one of the twelve, one of his disciples, actually betray him, bring, a, bring the servants of the high priest to him. They capture him and they take him in for his trial. And this is where we take the story up today. We open up the narrative with Jesus coming before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish law court, so, which is made up of the high priests, the elders, the scribes, and they're gathered in the upper room of the high priest. They bring Jesus there to conduct a trial. Um, normally, what happened was uh, the, high, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish law court, they used to sit in this semicircle on elevated seats, looking down upon the person that's being tried. And this is what's happening here. They're looking down on Jesus Christ, standing alone in the middle, and they're bringing witnesses, witnesses to come and um, give testimony against Jesus, to try and condemn him for what he has done. But I ask you to turn to Mark 14, verse 55 with me. Mark 14, verse 55. If you don't have your Bibles with you, just look onto your neighbor or uh, listen along. So they're thinking as they see Jesus here that this is our chance. They've been seeking to get rid of Jesus since day one. I don't know if you remember. Way back in chapter 3, they're seeking a way to destroy Jesus. And they're saying, here's a chance for us to get rid of this troublemaker. They call in their witnesses, but here what happens. Mark 14 verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him, 
We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. They needed evidence against Jesus to condemn him. But what does the text say? They didn't find any. They didn't find any at all. Jesus, if Jesus was getting married, then his best man would have no speech at all because he's got no dirt to dish on this man. The text goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus Christ, he's innocent. There's nothing that they can pin on him. There's no sin that they can hold against him. There's nothing that they can actually bring as evidence to be admissible against him. It's all, even when they try, it's all false and it doesn't match up and it doesn't work. Jesus Christ is the innocent man on trial here. This is the innocent man on trial. And it's at this point, the, when the trial's sort of going down the drain, that the high priest himself, he stands up and he has to take things into his own hands. He stands up and he says to Jesus, aren't you going to say anything? Don't you hear what they're saying against you? Why do you stay silent? But Jesus doesn't reply. He's silent. He knows that anything that he says will be twisted and used against him, so Jesus is silent. So the high priest asks this question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And finally, Jesus speaks. Finally, Jesus speaks. Verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, all throughout this narrative so far, Jesus has been a bit quiet about his identity as the Messiah because he knows that everyone's got false conceptions about what a Messiah actually is. But here he declares it boldly. He comes out and he says it, that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the king. He comes and says that boldly. And he's quoting from two Old Testament scriptures which give us a picture of what this king looks like, what this Messiah looks like. And they'll be coming up on the screen here. So Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And notice the language that's used here, what Jesus uses. In my vision at night, so this is a prophecy from Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When we hear this language of uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, oftentimes we jump to uh, Jesus' return at the end of time, but primarily, that will happen, yes, but primarily when uh, the Bible talks about this, it's a picture of his enthronement. It's a prior step. Uh, Daniel 7 is referring to Jesus Christ receiving authority. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, coming to the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and the Omega, the God of eternity, and receiving authority, dominion, and power, and a kingdom that will never, 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 never end. This is what Jesus is quoting about here. And then Psalm 110 also talks about the Son of Man sitting at the seat of honor, at the right hand 
of the God of the universe, sitting there reigning and ruling until the day that all his enemies will be defeated once and for all. This is the picture that Jesus is painting as a reply to this question, are you the Messiah? Yes, and this is what the Messiahship looks like. What Jesus is saying is this, you may kill me, but you will not win. You may kill me, but you will not win. Because the Messiah will not be defeated. Do you see the prophecy? His kingdom, it will never, 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 never end. He receives all authority, all dominion, all power over the entire universe. Nothing is going to hold him down. So as Jesus faces this trial, as he faces death that's coming around the corner, what keeps him going is knowing that there's more, that God has a plan for this that he will not be defeated, that he will actually rise again. You see, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven is actually the path to his enthronement as king. It is through his death and it's through his resurrection where he will receive the crown of glory for all eternity. And Jesus knows this. So while they might kill him, they will not win because Christ defeats death and he rises in glory. He will die condemned as a criminal. He will rise as the victorious king of the entire universe. When the high priest hears his claim, he says this in verse 64, you have heard this blasphemy, what do you think? What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. The charge laid against Jesus is blasphemy, speaking in an offensive, sacrilegious way about God. How, can you, you can imagine Jesus' opponents there as Jesus makes this claim. And he's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised king of all eternity. And these guys are thinking, how dare you say that? Look at you. Look at your situation right now. You're a disgrace. You, the holy king of the entire universe, how dare you say that and profane God's name in such a manner? And they take him away, they blindfold him, and they start striking him on the face, saying to him, prophesy, who hit you? They spit on him. They disgrace him. Here's the king, shamed, disgraced, even though he's an innocent, innocent man. I wonder how you feel when you see these events unfold. Um, Here is Jesus, the innocent man, standing on trial, uh, a trial where they can't find anything against him at all. And the one thing that they do hold against him is the fact that he's lying about being the Messiah when it is the truth. Here's what's happening. Innocent man condemned to death for telling the truth. This is the trial we're seeing. This is a gross injustice. Imagine if you saw that headline, uh, if you saw that on your social media feed, you saw it on the newspaper, if you saw it online, wherever you saw it, where innocent man condemned to death for telling the truth. There'll be an outrage, wouldn't there? There'll be some sort of hashtag campaign going around, you know, save Jesus. There'll be riots in the street. There'll be big protests. There'll be petitions everywhere because this is unjust. This shouldn't be. Innocent man condemned to death for telling the truth. No one would tolerate that. You wouldn't tolerate that if you heard that headline. You'd have to do something about it. But this is what's happening with Jesus Christ right now. 
It's an outrage. But it's part of the plan. And we'll see that very soon. And we're at point two, denial. As we move forward uh, to the, the narrative switches to the courtyard below the trial where Peter waits anxiously to hear the verdicts. And one of Jesus' disciples has followed him into the courtyard to hear what's going on. And he's, it's in the middle of the night, remember, this trial? So it's in the middle of the night, so it's cold. And Jesus um, and Peter is standing there warming his hands with the guards around a fire when a servant girl of the high priest actually walks past. And she walks past and she does a double take and she stares at Peter and says, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even, I don't even know who that is. And he, he retreats to the doorway of the courtyard, uh, probably away from the fire where it's a bit darker. But the, this servant girl, she persists. She says to all those around, no, no, definitely, you're one of them. This guy's one of them. I saw him with Jesus. And Peter denies that accusation once again. And then other people get in on the act because there's other people on the scene. And they, some people have heard um, Peter speaking and they, they say, no, you are definitely one of them. You're a Galilean. I can hear it. You're a Galilean. You are one of them. And what happens next is really heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking. Uh, so Mark 14, 71 to 72. Have a look at that verse with me. Mark 14, verses 71 to 72. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. What happens here shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Jesus Christ has predicted this coming. He knew that, Jesus, that Peter would deny him three times, or even, even though Peter has sworn that he'll stand by Jesus right till the very end. He knew this was coming. It shouldn't surprise us, but it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because this is one of Jesus' closest disciples denying his allegiance to his Lord in the time when Jesus needed it the most. He's not even willing to hint that he knows Jesus. And what a contrast this is to what's happening upstairs in parallel. So Peter's in the courtyard below the, um, in the, courtyard below the trial. Jesus is upstairs. And we see, we see P, P, Jesus upstairs. And he's being faced with injustice and accusations and insults and being spat on and being hit in the face. And what happens with Jesus? He stands firm. He doesn't deny who he is. He doesn't deny God. And then we see Peter in the courtyard below and he faces three accusations and he denies Christ. He's not even willing to say that he knows Jesus at all. What a stark contrast that is. As a first early church read this account, um, we imagine uh, as this gospel was circulated around to the early church, uh, it was a discipleship lesson to them, definitely, because the early church in the first century was this, it wasn't like we see today in Western culture. It was this fledgling little church being persecuted on all sides. The Roman Empire was trying to squash it out. It was a tough time to be a Christian. Death was waiting for you. And as they read these verses, I'm sure they would have been thinking, they would have been resonating with Peter and saying, you know what, uh, that's what I feel like. I want to deny Jesus because this is 
too hard. But then they would have looked at the example of Christ and they would have seen their king holding firm to the end and never denying God. And that's where they would have drawn strength from. That's the purpose of this part of the narrative for the early church. And I think it's the same for us too today as the modern church today. Because uh, we face persecution. We face pressure. We face uh, that, that temptation to deny Jesus. Sure, for all those of us who are Christians here, we've sworn allegiance to the king, right? We've said that prayer, you know, said sorry, said we want to follow the king. We've, um, many of us have been baptized and given that public testimony that the king is who we follow. We've prayed to Jesus and said, yes, I'll follow you right to the end. Yes, we said those things, but there's those times where you're, you might be in your workplace, you might be at home, you might be at school, whatever it is, when you are tempted to deny Jesus, when you have that friend that comes up to you and says, you don't really believe in all this Jesus rubbish, do you? You don't believe in this fairy tale stuff, do you? Are, you? are you serious? Do you understand science? Do you know all the evidence? This is primitive stuff. Are you kidding? You're still stuck in the Stone Ages. You actually believe this stuff? And at those times, you're tempted. You're tempted to deny Jesus, aren't you? Because that would be a much easier way out than to face what would be coming. Some of you might have faced that situation already. For some of us, that might still be coming. But in those times, what do we do? Where do we draw our strength from? Well, let me tell you, we look to the example of our King. And we look to Jesus Christ, who, even though he was under immense pressure, the future of suffering and death that we can't even comprehend being insulted, being spat on, being struck. He never, 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 never denied God. Never. And you might think, oh, this is Jesus. It's a whole bit different ball game. I'm not Jesus. But um, Hebrews 4 tells us this, that uh, we, we have not a high priest who's unable to empathize with us, but one who is able to empathize with us. Because Jesus Christ was tempted Satan took him out into the wilderness and he tempted Jesus Christ to say, you don't have to face the wrath of your father on the cross. You don't have to face that, that, that fate. You can have the, I'll give you the kingdom. Don't worry about it. Take the easy way. And let me tell you, Jesus was tempted at that time. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, you saw him just a few weeks ago. What was he praying for? He said, God, if there's any other way, then do it. He didn't want to face that. There was temptation to take the easy way out, to disobey, to not go to the cross. He knows what we're going through. But here's the difference that Hebrews 4 tells us. But he did not sin. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he, he stood firm right to the very end. Right to the very end, despite the harshest persecution imaginable, despite unjust punishment despite injustice of the highest degree against him. And friends, I'd encourage you to draw example from your king. And we should be so thankful that Jesus did not deny his calling as the Messiah and as God's son. This should be something that we thank and praise him for every single day of our lives because it means a whole new reality for us. It means real hope and real salvation. And we're at point three, Substitution. As we continue on the, the narrative, uh, what happens is that dawn breaks. So they've been having a trial all throughout the night because these high priests, they want to get Jesus. 
right? So all throughout the night, they've been having the trial. Uh, the rooster crows is morning time. Dawn breaks. The first thing they do is they take Jesus and they take him off to Pilate, the Roman governor of the area. See, what was happening at the time was the Roman Empire had actually, uh, they had control over Judea and they allowed the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to have a little bit of um, power in terms of religious affairs and whatnot, but they didn't have any power in terms of criminal prosecution. So if they wanted something to happen to Jesus, if they wanted to sentence him to death, they needed to bring him to the Romans. So early in the morning, they brought him to this governor, Pontius Pilate, to bring Jesus on trial yet again. And here we see injustice again. Pilate cared very little for Jewish religion. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about all this stuff. So this charge of blasphemy that they bring against Jesus, they change. They morph it a little bit. Um, And this is what Pilate actually reads out as Jesus is standing before him. There's a crowd gathered and Pilate is sitting on his high seat. Looking down, he reads out on his scroll the charge. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? The charge has moved away from blasphemy to a charge of treason, to a charge that this man, this is what the Sanhedrin is saying in the pilot, that this man is claiming to be a king in opposition to the emperor. This man is a troublemaker. He's got followers. He's going to cause trouble. You have to do something about him. He's claiming to be a king. The emperor is the only king. You need to do something about this pilot. That's what they're saying to him. He's a threat. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies with these few words. You have said so. You have said so. You see, Pilate is speaking the truth, isn't he? Jesus is the king of the Jews, but Pilate has no idea how big the claim is that he's making. Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, his kingship is bigger than any human conception possible. This kingship extends far beyond anything that they've ever seen before. And here's an irony that the text sets up for us, that the narrative sets up for us. Here we see Jesus Christ helpless and overpowered, bound, facing in an unjust trial, the authorities lording it over him. But at the same time, we have a different perspective. Because we know that this is the king of the entire universe that will not be defeated, that has all power, authority, and dominion. This king that they're seeking to condemn is the glorious king of the entire universe who will not be beaten. As the trial continues, we see what a sham this trial is because uh, they call uh, witnesses to come forward. The chief priests say all, this, uh, all these accusations over and over. But Pilate, he's not convinced. He turns to Jesus and says, why don't you say anything? Don't you hear all the things they're saying against you? But Jesus remains silent. And Pilate is amazed. He's thinking to himself, what do I do with this man? I know he's innocent. What do I do with him? He knows the chief priests have an agenda. Pilate doesn't like being manipulated by the Jews. He doesn't want to just give in to what they're saying. He's thinking, what what do I do with this guy? Open up to Mark 15, verse 6. I want you to read these verses with me. I want you to feel the weight of these verses. Mark 15, verse 6. Have a listen. Now, it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with an insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. 
the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As this section of the narrative finishes, we see Jesus being condemned to crucifixion, the most shameful death available. Roman citizens weren't allowed to be killed in this manner. And he's sentenced to death, but before that happens, he's flogged. Um, He's tied to a stone pillar, and they bring out an instrument called a flagellum, which is um, just pieces of leather intertwined with pieces of bone and metal, and they just lash Jesus' back over and over until it's just a bloody pulp. Many men died from this punishment, but Jesus is still alive. His death is still to come. And as we look at this trial, I wonder how you feel. This is injustice at the highest degree. A a man who is innocent, but is sentenced to death for nothing. They're tragic verses, aren't they? Jesus is sentenced to death despite being innocent. He's sentenced to death because the Jewish council has an agenda against him. He's sentenced to death because uh, Pilate is a people pleaser and he's too weak to do anything to actually release an innocent man even though he has the power to do so. This is injustice that's unbearable. Can you imagine seeing these, uh, that headline? Oh, the headline will change a bit. Uh, Guilty man lives. Innocent man sentenced to death. We see Barabbas freed we see Jesus sentenced to death. Barabbas, a convicted murderer, a convicted rebel against the Roman Empire, freed, and Jesus Christ is killed. Guilty man lives, innocent man sentenced to death. If you got this news, if you saw this on the news feed, you would not think that this is great news. You would be thinking this is terrible, terrible news. But friends, this is actually good news. In fact, it's the best news you could ever receive. Let me show you why. We've been talking about justice today, and um, there's something, you know, that's something that we all want. We're outraged when we hear about injustice in this world, aren't we? When we hear those headlines that are just put onto you, imagine if you saw those headlines. You'll be outraged. Innocent man sentenced to death and a guilty man walking free and living you would be absolutely outraged at that because we have this injustice. Uh, we, we, we want justice. We, we, we hate injustice. This is human thing within us. And we call out, God, where's the justice? Why don't you bring justice on this world? But friends, let me tell you, if we wanted God to bring justice to this world, then that same standard of justice would have to be applied to each and every one of us. And that means that we're in trouble. That means that we're in trouble. The Bible talks about a final day of judgment for all of us. 
This isn't a fairy tale. This is the reality. A final day of judgment where, uh, imagine the scene where you'll be standing before God. You'll be on his judgment throne. Uh, the multitudes will be around you. All of us will be there. Everyone will be there. And we'll be on trial, one by one, waiting our verdict. And as we step up to this defendant's bench and uh, God brings out the record, this isn't some minor traffic offense that we're talking about. This is your entire life, your entire life on record. And God will see all the things that you've said, all the things that you've done, all the things you've thought, and he's going to see whether you are good or evil. And the verdict of this trial, it's, it's the most significant verdict that you'll ever have. Because it's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This is what will happen on that final day. A trial for justice. The justice we demand. You might be thinking to yourself, well, if that's the case, then I'm in a pretty good place. Because I'm, I'm not bad. You know? I've, I'm not a bad person. I've, um, you know, I haven't committed any criminal... Or, you know, few traffic fines, you know, that's all right. Um, I haven't committed anything too bad, and my mantra in life is sort of to help others. I seek to help others. I seek to do good. So I think, I think I'll be all right. God would accept me. I'm a good person. I wonder how confident of that fact you would be if I told you that right now, that um, I'd actually, uh, I've actually got a video of your life. I've actually teed up the AV team, and they've got a video of every single one of you here. Um, and your life and what's happening in your life. And we're going to show that publicly here today. Um, and this video, it's fantastic technology because it not only shows the things that you do when you're here at church, but it shows everything that you do. Um, it also shows the things that you've done in secret when nobody else is around. Secret things when nobody else is watching. Um, and it gets better because this technology also has seen every single thought that has gone through your mind, and it's, it's up there on the screen. It's fantastic. It's high definition, uncensored, 4K. It's, everyone's going to watch it. And we're going to see all your thoughts, all your words, all your actions, every little thing that you've done in your life. It's going to be up there on that screen. I wonder how you would feel. I wonder if your confidence in your goodness would still be there. I don't know about you, but I would do whatever it takes to get that video not to be shown. Because if we're honest with ourselves, let's be real, friends. If we look beneath the shiny exteriors that we bring to church every Sunday and we, we're honest with ourselves and we look in our hearts, and we know that there's so much hidden sin, so much hidden guilt, so much hidden shame in here. Things we've said, things we've done, things we've thought about others, even the people sitting beside us that we're deeply ashamed of. If we look into our hearts and we're honest with ourselves, there's some terrifying things there because we are all sinful. We are all sinful. We are so far from being good enough for God. Let me tell you, if we showed those videos today, we would not be able to look into each other's eyes the same way again. That's the reality of the human heart. No matter how good we look on the surface. And think about it, if we're ashamed to show each other these things, then how much more so God? The God of the universe, the holy, perfect, and righteous God on that final judgment day, on our trial, all these things, because God has that video. 
He knows it all. He sees it all. How much more should we be ashamed of the things that we've done? And how much more will these things be magnified? Because even the things that we think are inconsequential, little things, oh, I forgot to do this, or you know, I didn't really mean it when I said this thing, all of these things, all the little inconsequential things in the face compared to a perfect, holy, and righteous God are magnified 10,000 times over. It will be unbearable. That's the final judgment. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. And if we want justice, we're going to be in trouble. Which is why we need this news. Guilty man lives, innocent man sentenced to death. Are you starting to see why this is good news? Because our only hope is in Jesus Christ taking our place. Innocent man sentenced to death so that we guilty people can live. And this isn't a new idea. This has been right from the very beginning. This is God's plan. Um, this scripture from Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant fulfilled in Christ, uh, a prophet centuries before Jesus was around. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He dies because of our sins. Jesus Christ takes on all our guilt, all our shame, all our sins upon himself, and he takes it to that cross, and he dies upon that cross to pay for it all. He takes our old life upon himself. And not only that, he gives us his life, his perfect life of obedience, of righteousness and holiness, so that on that final trial, we will be safe. Imagine yourself back at that judgment day and um, you're before God and he says, okay, it's your turn. About to show your video now. You ready? And you're, you're cringing because you know what's on that video and everyone's going to see it and there's nothing to hide. Nowhere to hide. And God puts on that video and it starts playing and you quickly realize, this isn't your video. You see a man walking this earth. You see him helping the poor, having compassion on the weak. You see a man healing the sick, casting out demons, doing incredible things. But then you see this man before a council in an unjust trial, you see him face insults and injustice. You see him spat on. You see him beaten. You see him condemned to death when he doesn't deserve it. You see him taken and be flogged until his back is a bloody mess. You see his hands and his feet being nailed to pieces of wood. You see him raised up on that cross. You see this man cry out in anguish, and then you see him die. That's the video you see. And you, you're conf you say to God, God, this isn't my video. This, there's been a mistake. But God turns to you and says, there's been no mistake. You followed Jesus, didn't you? He's taken your life. His life is yours now. I don't see the old anymore. All I see is Christ and his life.
And then God says, you're not guilty. Welcome in. Welcome home. That's what Christ has done for us, friends. He's taken our place. He's paid for our sins and given us his life and his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the old anymore, but he sees Christ's righteousness and he says, welcome home. Friends, for anyone who repents of the old way of life that they're holding on to, that sin that they're holding on to and comes and trusts themselves, entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ, then this is available for you. This safety, this security, this assurance is available for you. And you will share in the kingdom of God for all eternity because of what Christ, our servant king, has done for us. Around this headline, guilty man lives, innocent man sentenced to death. This story, that headline, that headline is, this story is good news. This story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this story can be your story. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for Christ Jesus, the one who dies for us in our place, even though we are so undeserving. He dies for us whilst we were enemies of you. And he gives us his righteous life so that when you look at us, you see Christ's righteousness and you declare not guilty. Thank you, Father, that by your mercy, by your grace, that this is available for all who turn to you. And we pray that there will not be a day where we don't praise you and honor you and glorify you for this amazing, amazing gospel that's been given to us. And we pray these things for your son's glory. Amen.